Hey there. Thanks for joining me on Comedy Masterclass, where I interview creators about the craft of writing comedy. Today, I am very excited to have Johnny Smith with me, who is a live action and animation screenwriter and script consultant. His work spans books, TV, film. For example, he wrote Dragon Rider and also co-wrote Nomeo and Juliet and The Queen's Corgi. So I'm very excited to talk to Johnny today about all things animation. But Johnny, you do so much more than that. So what else should people know about you and your connections to creating comedy? Oh, well, uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me on. Um, I, uh, I also write live action, um, uh, which is everything which isn't animation, I suppose. Um, uh, and I write a lot of TV stuff and I write kids' books too uh, for uh, a publisher called Scholastic about a boy whose name is John Smith. Mm. Uh, which I know an awful lot about, I can tell you. Uh, yeah. So that's sort of what I do. I love that. Brilliant. So much to talk about. The, one of the places I wanted to start with, if we're thinking about animation and we're thinking about, like, for example, you, as I say, have worked on so many different animation uh, screenplays. What do you think are some of the misconceptions that people have about writing screenplays for animation? Uh, I think the biggest one is people think it's only for kids. And yeah. therefore, it's going to be easier. Um, you kind of tendency to think, oh, well, you talk down to kids. You know, you've been there already. You know more than them. So you only need to use half your brain to tell them a story. It's actually far harder because you have to not only be yourself, but be your audience too when you're writing animation. You have to think as them, but mm. still stay yourself. I think the other thing which is, difficult about animation is you have to um, often build an entire world. Mm. Uh, so live action, in a sense, takes a slice of our world. I mean, that's not quite true, but it sort of does, where animation is completely its own world. It has to justify itself anthropomorphically for being animated by being something other than our own life that we have. So you have to build everything from the ground up. So it's it's not just the characters and their families or relationships and stories, but it's sort of everything that might be in that world they're in, which includes all the rules of what can happen, but also perhaps even more importantly, what can't happen in that world. That all makes it a lot more testing um, as a way of doing things creatively. Uh, so I think that's that's another, I don't know if that's a misconception, but I think it all goes back to people thinking you throw it together. Uh, and the other thing, of course, about animation is it takes a really long time. It takes a really, really long time uh, to make an animated movie. I mean, many years. So, um, and the final thing I think I want to say, not today, but on that, is that if you were to make a live action movie, um, the performances would... Um, uh, uh, the performance would all happen at the same time. In other words, you film the performance and that becomes the film. Uh, whereas in animation, what tends to happen is that the actors lay down the vo voice track and then the animation is sort of, uh, is physically generated, visually generated in the sense to match the inflection of the voices. So, so the voices come first and the visuals come second. So I wanted to ask you uh, about physical comedy one of those many layers uh, specifically because in the movies I've seen of yours that you've written, there's so much great physical comedy, whether it's like the opening scenes or the montages or the high action with music running underneath. So I wondered any tips for people who are thinking about how to get physical comedy onto the page? 
Well, I suppose uh, the big thing is that you don't set out to write physical comedy for its own sake. Um, if it's physical comedy, it still has to be telling a story. So it still has to be about a character who wants something and something or somebody is stopping them getting it. Um, and that's what the physical comedy will be. The audience will appreciate the challenges that face that character or whatever the situation is. Uh, you don't write physical comedy bit by bit by bit mm. in the way that a director would want to expand on it. You just need the through line of the character and to keep their integrity. Clearly, if you can write the prose in terms of the description of the comedy with some life and humour in the prose itself, then that's great because that will point towards the overall tone of what you're trying to achieve. But a, a uh, two or three pages of screenplay might end up as 10 seconds of film or the other way around. So don't try to write it for its own sake and keep the integrity of the character and what they are trying to do running through the whole of it. I love that. And as someone from the outside who doesn't have experience of this kind of process, um, there's such a strong use of music in animation. Is that something that you consider as you're writing physical comedy sequences or can influence in any way, or is it actually just quite complicated? Uh, I think on the scripts I've written and when I've worked with my uh, ex-writing partner, Rob, we sometimes have a song in mind and you write that song onto the script. Obviously, there are all kinds of rights and creative taste issues around that song you've chosen, but it helps you... Be inspired yourself over what you're trying to do mm. if you hear a certain track that goes with it. But when that gets filtered through many other hands, that very often doesn't survive the process. And either a different known song comes in or another piece or a piece of, of original music and sometimes nothing at all. Mm. So um, you sort of, you you can't think too much about production stuff when you're writing. But then the more you think about externals, like what does mm. the music sound like, and even how can I convey all aspects of a physical comedy routine, the more you're outside yourself looking in, and that's not a good place to be when you're a writer. Yeah, that's really wise advice, because I was going to ask you, because in your, in your biography, the amount of different studios and production companies that you've worked with is extraordinary. So I was going to ask just in terms of from the perspective of where you are now, in terms of patterns, um, things you've learned about that process that you just couldn't have known going in. I know that's a broad question. I think the, I think the biggest thing, and this is something which I'm uh, still learning, uh, is that when you write, you may write, you may be employed by many, many, many people, uh, and you may work in big organizations or small stu uh, small production companies, but you have to write for yourself. You have to write mm -hmm. for you. Uh, the trick is that you have to trust that what you write will will serve what everyone else around you in the production wants, but you must write for you first. If you listen to too many outside voices, you will become distracted and confused, um, and you'll try to please too many um, masters or mistresses. You must write for yourself. Yeah, that sounds really sage advice. And um, you have experience of writing as a partnership as well. And mm. when you look at uh, lots of films that come out, there are multiple writing credits often on films. Mm. So what mm. are things do you think that you've learned uh, about either co-creation or collaboration in your time as a writer? 
I think, um, first of all, writing comedy plays well to writing in partnerships, mm. uh, because if you make the other person laugh, then you're sort of on the right lines. And comedy also is a more externalized kind of thing to do. You know, you don't sit down and write a, a deep and meaningful personal story with a writing partner necessarily, um, because obviously of the subject matter. Uh, so I think collaborating is very important. You have to trust the other person. You have to trust that if they don't get where you're coming from, why would anybody else? Um, uh, uh, so I think that's that's terribly good. And also, I think in a partnership, like anything, like a marriage, you're, you hope that your weaknesses are your partner's strengths mm. uh, and vice versa. Um, there's no point in both being good in the same area, and both say both being good in dialogue and both being bad in structure let's say, for argument's sake. There's no point in that because you're going to end up with something which is not very structured, even if it's got great dialogue. Uh, you need to have complementary strengths, be that conceptual, uh, be that to do with plotting, dialogue, structure, character. You know, these are all slightly different things and you need to cover all of them between the two or the three of you or however many there are. So I think that's why you see writing partnerships um writing credits where there's four or five writers is more to do with the politics of arbitration and the studio system um and more to do with um executives uh hiring and firing writers quite often you get let go other let's bring in fresh blood for some reason executives always think it's better to fire the writer even mm -hmm. if the writer was um simply carrying out what they wanted. Um, and so they bring in fresh blood, new people, uh, and it can, at its best, it can be greater than some of its parts, and at its worst, it's the curate's egg or it's the um, camel being a horse designed by a committee. Mm, you know? yeah. So yeah. that's sort of... But that's why you see many names. Yeah. You see more than one writer on most films. Funny enough, you don't see more than one director, but you mm. see more than one writer, or not often anyway. Yeah, mm. no, fascinating. And uh, what do you think are some of your writing uh, strengths, particularly from a comedic perspective, or things that you just really enjoy? You're always like, oh, this is the bit where I get to do this. I think I'm very good on concept. I think I'm mm. very good on on conceptualizing worlds, building worlds. Um, I think I'm very good at coming up with the essential concept that gets everything going. Um, so if you take um, Nomeo, uh, sorry, the Queen's Corgi. Mm. The Queen's Corgi is uh, essentially if you take a dog who's um, lives in Buckingham Palace and has a pampered life, and and he's cast out and he goes to Battersea Dog's home, then you can see two different settings, uh, two different homes for that character and how you can see a certain amount of narratively what that will bring out for his journey. Um, so I think I'm very good at, at kicking off core ideas, core concepts. Uh, I think I'm very good at writing visually Mm. Um, so that I think people can see what I'm writing when I'm writing it. I hope they can. Um, uh, and um, I think I have a very good, strong first-person writing voice as well. So a lot of my books are written in the first person. Mm. Um, I think it's a sort of egotistical thing. That's me in there then, because I'm writing as me. Uh, uh, so I think that's also a strength. I'm very, very good, I think, at picking apart things that aren't working. 
Um, but, you know, we all have our strengths and weaknesses. Everybody does. Mm. And also sometimes those strengths are stronger than other days. You know, they fluctuate within themselves too. So um, I think it's a, it's a strange business writing comedy and it's a strange business working on your own as well. And neither of them are particularly good for your mental health. Mm. So, you know, yeah, I put a big one there on the table. Yeah, you I? did. I've got a minimum of three things I want to ask you about straight away. <laughs> so I'll try and remember them yeah. all as we go. And the first one um, is that as you had a question about concept, because that was something that I'd noticed, like when I, like, I whether it's Nomeo and Juliet, like you only have to say the name mm. and already the concept like starts to mm. spring to life. Mm. I was like, I can absolutely mm. imagine like seeing the title, a log line, um, mm. you know, a pitch and being mm. immediately mm. grabbed. So I did, I did mm. want to actually ask you about that one, or it could be a different example. Mm. Um, just using it as an example of what that process was like for you from sort of coming up to the pitch, um, coming up with their concept through to, say, the pitch stage. So it was Rob and myself working on Romeo and Juliet. And mm. I think it was Rob, actually, who said gnomes. And then it may have been him, it may have been me, I can't remember, who said, oh, well, this, what about Romeo mm. as a character? And for a long time, and this is insane, for a long time it was called a gnome story mm. about Romeo, about Romeo and Juliet with gnomes. Yeah. <laughs> we realised, why do we call it Romeo and Juliet <laughs> instead yeah. of a gnome story or something like this? Anyway, when you have an idea like that, that is Romeo and Juliet with garden gnomes. Mm. The idea tells you nearly everything the idea has to be. Mm. That you see the end of the creative journey at the same time as you see the beginning of it. By which I mean that the last inflection of any creative journey is what would the marketing people do with your film? Mm. Well, it's your first idea. It's Romeo and Juliet with garden gnomes. It's posted there. An epic tale on a tiny scale. Mm. That's what they say. Yeah, but good. so you say, okay. It's got to be Romeo and Juliet, the basic beats. Um, and it's got to be set in an English suburbia because that's where you get garden gnomes. Mm. And you've got to have two rival sets of garden gnomes and then you've got to have love across the divide, in this case, a garden fence. Um, and then you've got to have uh, two warring factions. So you have one set of gnomes, another set of gnomes, Capulet, Montague, all that sort of stuff. And it's one of Shakespeare's more high-profile um, stories, and it's been done as a musical, and it's been done uh, in all kinds of um, modern romantic comedy kind of ways. And you go, right, this idea tells us 85% already of what the idea, what has to be in the film. Because what has to be in the film at that point, it's very generic, that idea, or it's very easy for people to get their, com communally to get their heads around it, to say, well, obviously, it's Romeo and Juliet with garden gnomes. Mm. Now, whether you have lawnmowers, whether you have flamingos, whether you have Elton John, whether you have greenhouses, whether you have, you know, all that kind of stuff, how much Shakespeare do you have in there? Do you have lines of Shakespeare? Because I always wanted a plague on both your greenhouses as a line oh. to be in there, because, yeah. you know, and it never made it in. And I was very angry about that. Mm. But so how much Shakespeare do you have? How much backgrounded Shakespeare? How much this is what the, the grown-ups will like? Those are also levels you can play with. But at the end of the day, it has to be a film about fantasy things that come to life because mm. that's really what animation is. Either they've always been alive or they come to life like Toy Story. And so you say, okay, they're garden gnomes by day 
And they're these characters by night or out of sight anyway. So once you work at the rules, rules of the world, mm. rules of the world, if you work at the rules of the world, then you just go play. And now it's sort of like you've invented the board game, mm. now play with it. And that's sort of, I think, what me and Rob started off with, and that's sort of how we how we got going down the road. So, um, And then we wrote... So you want to know how it went from that to the to film? The or well, to, to the pitch, yeah. To, oh. Yeah. Okay, so at the time we were represented by uh, an agent in America at ICM, ICM mm. Big American Agency. And we said, we've got this idea, we wanted to do this. Sorry, we wrote the screenplay. We wrote mm. it as a speculative screenplay. We wrote a script without showing anybody. And we sent it to our agent. And he said, no one over here likes uh, knows what gnomes are. No one knows what god gnomes are. So that was that. So about a year went by, and in that year we rewrote it and we improved it a lot. But we also um, uh, were told by ICM in London that a certain production company called Rocket Pictures, owned by Mr. Elton John, would would very much like to have a look at this. So mm. we shared it with them. And I think Sir Elton had a first-look deal with Disney, and he showed it to them. And coming through London, they then said, well, you're Sir Elton and you've done The Lion King, so go for it then and let's um, develop it. And so there wasn't the need to have a pitch because the script, mm. because the script was there. Um, and then it only took 11 years to make the film. Oh, gosh. <laughs> okay, so, only. So yeah. that was sort of... Worth it. I don't know. If, if Rob listens in, he'll go, no, it wasn't like that. Oh, <laughs> it was no. like this. But uh, it was something like that. Yeah, yeah, remembering as best you can. No, that's really interesting to hear behind the scenes. Thank you. So that's I wanted right. to ask you um, about the visual side because I said you said that's one of your strengths because there are some really good visual jokes if we stick with Naomi and Juliet mm. for example there's some really really great visual jokes um if you were um gonna ha- like if someone's like I'm not very good at that what would be a way that you might get them to start practicing this week to like turn their brain or that bit of their brain on to start looking for visual jokes or do they just need to find a writing partner that's good at it well, actually, when I meant writing visually, I didn't necessarily only mean writing visual jokes. I mean mm. writing so that you can envi- envisage the, the thing on the right, page. Right, got you. Um, um, in terms of writing visual jokes, obviously, in the script, and even though a script is 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 leaning in, is is part of a visual process, it's still clearly a non-visual thing at that moment. You, you're reading a script; it doesn't have pictures with it um you still need to write it through the integrity of the characters again mm. so uh, if the character is if there's a you have to write what amuses you mm. you have to write what amuses you and if that's a visual thing great write it and don't worry if people don't pick up on it mm. um trust yourself trust your instincts um and 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 on on the broader front try to be telling a story visually with a screenplay you know uh, you know especially animation screenplays they're meant to be stories told visually with dialogue to accompany it that mm. way around that way around not the other way so you're not a radio play you're meant to tell the story visually and where needs be accompanied with dialogue um uh and apart from that if you have a certain flair for how you write humorous material visually on the page great absolutely do that but don't sweat over it and don't think that your screenplay will be judged based on that because it won't Mm. but I loved for example that you um really used the setting 
for that too. I don't know whether it was you or brother did it. I don't want to give away the joke, but there's the house signs. Um, there's a really fun joke that brought in the, the Shakespeare and that. And it's like, oh, because if even if you're, because I think it was, I made that as a note to myself because I also mm. really love character and I, mm. I love your advice to like filter things through character. I think without that, it mm. falls apart. But it was mm. a really good like note to myself to really think about what the setting can be doing as well. I tend to think of it in terms of atmosphere, but you like had some really good ways of using the setting. Yeah, and and again, it it's 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 um having fun with your world that you've created. Mm. Uh, have the confidence to let it sit on two levels if you want Capulet and Montague and twenty to be and not to be and all that mm. sort of stuff. Um, and have Shakespeare in there if you want to. In fact, go more meta, go more self conscious if you want to. Mm. Uh, be more clever. If you want to, um, uh, because audiences come out of that enjoying those those references, and to those who don't pick up on those references, they'll pick up on them the next time they watch it, or someone might say that was that was to do with this or that or the other. Uh, so, so be intellectual as well. Be intellectual if you want to, especially if it's Shakespeare, for mm. sake, you know. So, yeah, and you find those things as you sort of go through it. Um, uh, and, and they become more apparent. As I say, some don't make the final cut. Some people don't like a particular joke. Or for some people, they might think, yeah, but that kind of goes outside the situation too much. Mm. And, you know, but put it all in there. I love that. And you mentioned earlier in the interview, uh, right, right at the beginning, um, that actually it is a misconception that it's easier because you know, one, uh, children are very smart viewers. And two, as you say, you're actually writing for a much broader spectrum of people uh, than that. Yes. And I, I think animation yes. often has like quite a weight to carry in terms of all the people it's meant to be entertaining uh, if it's yes. seen as a family film. So I just wondered any advice for uh, balancing those different considerations, but still being able to come up with like this unique tone. She was saying like, you know, you need, you need to write for yourself because there's so many voices. So how do you balance that tone when you're trying to keep in mind you know whether it might be you know grandparents that are watching who've also got a six-year-old who like any tips yeah so you'll be challenged about this quite a lot I mean yeah. I think it might depend on whether you're writing something which is a speculative piece of your own material let's just assume you are and not writing on commission on mm. commission is a slightly different thing because they have an idea of what they want let's say a production company and you have to try your best to fit into that not wholly, but you try try your best. Um, if you're writing um, speculatively, so you're writing your own stuff, there's been a, a trend in the last 30 years with animation movies to give them what is called crossover appeal. Mm. So I think probably Toy Story began it. So mum and dad go and see Toy Story and their son and their daughter get a lot out of it. So guess what? They the, the film company has four people all really enjoying the film. And mum says to her mum friends the next day at drop-off, go and see that film. So they take their kids and their husband says, well, I, I really liked it, you know. Well, lo and behold, students studios love that, obviously, because it means it's four tickets mm. all the time, four tickets. Instead of parents saying, oh, gosh, I've got to go and see this film and it's only really for the kids. I'm going to be so bored and all that sort of stuff. Now, there's a problem with that, mm. and that is that you start to make films which are only have crossover appeal. They only have... Um, they only have a, they only want to appeal to both mum and dad and the kids, and that can sell kids short 
basically. You know, not all things are meant for the parents as well as the kids. Otherwise, you end up with that slightly, uh, you know, kind of um, uh, that slightly hip humor all the time in everything mm. you know where you know it's got you know somebody's got the funny put down or whatever it happens to be and then films become the same um and then people say well actually let's go back to doing stuff which is only for um children uh and do that with with that integrity but you know you'll find your own way everything as a writer everything is about finding your voice mm. everything if you find your voice then you can um, use that and adapt that and 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 mould that around whichever project you're working on and whoever you're working for. If you don't find a voice, then you won't get started anyway. And that voice comes back to, ruthlessly, I'm afraid, writing what you want to write. Mm. Um, it's sort of, it's playing a game with yourself. That's what it is. It's playing a game with yourself. There was a, a man, uh, he was a theatre practitioner called Keith Johnston. Mm. And he once upon a time said, we we are truly creative when we don't feel responsible for being creative. Mm. And that's terribly important, that. Responsibility is not a good word when you're trying to kind of um, go on a creative journey. So the more you can play the game with yourself, the more you can outrage yourself mm. at what you've done, the better the better, I promise you. Um, it's sort of, it's where psychologists find flow and things mm. like this. So um, I love right, that. I, think. I love that. And I wanted to um, ask you, because you did mention it about mental health. So you've, you've just touched there beautifully mm. on like what states might be helpful for creation and what made you um, sort of mention mental health. And I do think it's an interesting conversation for writers and actually not one that we've had on the podcast so far. So I was just curious mm. uh, what your sort of I think, take on that okay, is. Okay, so to, to go back to basics, I think creative people, we're all a little bit insecure. Um, it, we are creating stuff and putting it out there into a space where it is obviously judged and viewed mm. and we want to share what we do which opens us up to feedback rejection criticism any of those things um and we're often working on our own so we are the self-consumer of all our woes to quote john clare um mm. and so it's hard to get balance that's another good reason why to be in a writing partnership you can pull each other through the bad times um so I think that weighs in on you. I think it can take a toll on your self-esteem. Uh, I don't know many writers that don't suffer from that. Um, and it's all well and good to say, well, you should be, you know, uh, have a little more, um, uh, be a bit more bullish about stuff, have a little more resilience. Uh, but often you can't find that sometimes mm. when you need it. Um and that's the time when you need it most, and it's the time when it deserts you. Mm. And it's the time then when you are unconfident about what you do. I know that feeling for myself. I really, really do. And I think there's probably a lot of people who, if they're honest with themselves, know that feeling too. And that takes a toll on your mental health. I think also you must write because you love it. You must write because you want to and because you enjoy it. But let's be realistic. If you're looking for an end result from your writing, so if you're looking to sell a screenplay um, and get things moving for yourself and you spend three months, six months, nine months working on something that comes to nothing at all, mm. 
then you then you would have to be quite Pollyanna-ish to assume that that's not going to affect you, because it does, because you feel like you've you'll feel like you're an actor who's rehearsed mm. and never went onto the stage, so it has a terrible crushing feeling. It's quite existential, and and every writer has got a drawer filled with projects that they've laboured over and never went anywhere. And and I don't even mean that, oh, there were a lot of people interested, but it never got off the ground. I mean, it never went anywhere at all beyond the gatekeepers who all threw it back in their face. So that's not good for your mental health either. And I think all of these things undermine your self-esteem. The opposite is true. It's the most wonderful thing in the world. Fabulous. When you... um, Write something that you are proud of and which other people recognise. Uh, and and or when friends come to you and say, "Oh, my son's just re- uh, read one of your books and they loved it," or whoever, um, or you see it online. Online is another problem. Mm. Online, obviously. <laughs> uh, yeah. So you see things written about yourself and about your material, which is can be very, very, very um, undermining of how you feel so you mustn't go looking yeah so, so so i think that's where it's it's a problem with you know with your mental health and i think those are if those sit closely to being it sounds grand to say to being a creative person but i think that you know there's a there's a sort of a neuroses alive there which is just part of the way it is yeah that makes um total sense and you uh shared that really beautifully thank you and obviously everyone is different everyone has a different brain different living situation different working situations different pressures but are there any things that you think um have helped for or you know have helped other writers that you know in those times where maybe it it is that disappointment of having invested so much in a project that hasn't got off the ground or hearing the no or what helps, particularly if you're trying to write something that's fun and entertaining. And, I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not good for that, is it? No. Um, well, first of all, remember that it's not just you. Yeah. It's everybody. And it's everybody at all levels of success, by the way. Um, uh, who was telling me this story? Yes, yeah, so a friend of mine, I, I won't quote him, mm. but but who he is, but he's 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 a... He's uh, like one of the greatest film editors in the world. Mm. And he told me that he was with Hans Zimmer, the the composer. Mm. And Hans Zimmer had just won the Academy Award. I'm just trying to find out what this film was. I can't remember whichever it was. And the next day, Hans Zimmer had notes from a producer on something else. And the producer said, this sucks. This is lousy. This is awful. Do it again. Mm. And Hans Zimmer told my friend and said, you know, I've had all this success, but I still suffer from imposter syndrome. I still feel like I'm living someone else's life and I'm about to get a tap on the shoulder to say, you were not meant to be in this space. And that's Hans Zimmer, wildly successful, massively talented man. So I think that everybody, whatever they've achieved in life, feels like this is all about to be taken away or that I've run out of road in terms of my talent. Mm. I think everybody knows that insecurity. So what I would say is that if you're feeling that wherever you are, wherever you are, whether you're just starting, whether you're um, coming down from success, whether you feel like I'll never break through, you're only experiencing what every single person who has got a soul feels. Yeah, that's incredibly reassuring. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and um, I wanted to ask you, because you mentioned earlier on that um, first person 
voice uh, point of view. Mm. Sounds like it comes quite naturally to you. Um, mm. But I wanted to ask whether there was anything that you found uh, surprising or challenging in either, you know, uh, uh, like, oh, I have to fix this way or in a delightful way when you moved into publishing books as well. So publishing books, um, writing writing books, writing for kids is great in the sense that there's fewer people in the process. Mm. You work closely with an editor, um, but they you retain the IP with the book. So, so the book always stays your book on some profound level. When you write feature films, you sell the IP. So mm. that has enormous um, repercussions for a writer, not only legally and contractually and financially, but in a sense spiritually. It means... This is not my baby. I've sold the freehold to my own property. Whereas in a book, you own that freehold. You always will. Um, and, and that's very reassuring. Uh, it's a smaller world, often with a small, with less to gain financially, probably. But you can control creatively the world that you're in. Also, obviously, with a book, you're not bound by the confines of budget. Mm. If you want to dream up, you know, the world splitting into a million pieces and whatever else that happens to be or whatever you want to do, uh, then that's not, those words don't cost more than other words. Mm. <laughs> All words cost the same on the page. Um, uh, whereas in a film, clearly, you've got a lot of restriction over what you can do budget-wise, um, which shouldn't be your start point with a film. Never edit yourself, but you will come up against that if people are interested in it. Mm. Um Beyond that, I think when you're writing, it's really up to you to rock the vote. You need to go out there. You need to read your material to whoever your ideal reader is, as Stephen King would put it. Um, and you need to find where those readers are and what they like about what you do. And you need to kind of get people one by one by one interested. Word of mouth is really mm. important in books. Uh, in film and TV, they haven't got time or the budget for that. Yeah, I mean, it's too big. We need to get it out there really you know, fast and wide and, and with a lot of energy and will employ lots of people to do it. So that's a very different thing. You don't have the tap on your... You don't get fired when you write your own book. No one fires you. Um, it's very rare that a publisher will invest in your book and then give up on it halfway through the process of rewriting the manuscript. It's going to be a book on a shelf. When you write a film and you sell it, it might be a film in a cinema but it probably won't, I'm afraid, mm. because of the ratio of films developed, scripts developed, films made. So I think that's one of the nice things about writing books. Uh, and they're always around. I can see my books up there. They're always yeah. around, you know, um, whether people like that or not, they're always around. Yeah. So, so that's sort of, I think, a difference. Lovely. And are there any um, particular comic uh, creators that you love and I use comedy in the broadest term it doesn't have to be that kind of laugh out loud comedy but whether that's in books whether that's in films tv for any ages and just any personal favorites when I was a kid my hero was Woody Allen oh. and obviously we we sort of like would have to have to slightly pause now I'm afraid but my yeah. hero was Woody Allen he was unbelievably clever um incredible range as a writer but also um, just a brilliant comedian, a mm. brilliant comedian. I love Ricky Gervais. I think mm. all of Ricky Gervais's stuff is fantastic. I think he writes with a kind of honesty. He's another person that doesn't care what people think of him, and that's such a strength. 
It's such a strength. Um, and I think he's fantastic. Everything that he's done virtually, when it's been his stuff that he's been doing, is great. I think Afterlife is, mm. is superb. Um, obviously, it's the spirit of the stairs. You know, after this, I'm going to think of, after this podcast, I'm going to think of 20 other people. Uh, but why didn't I mention these uh, people? I thought Fleabag was fantastic. Mm. Absolutely brilliant. Um I could watch Only Fools and Horses all day long because I think he's just John Silverman of just a genius. Um, so, yeah, there's there's just... Oh, Airplane. So when I was a kid, Airplane, mm. I went to the cinema one day. It was 1979, I think, or 78, and I was 16, and I was this film called Airplane. And I couldn't believe that anybody could do such clever things with the English language. It was so funny. It was so obvious but clever at the same time it was brilliantly obvious and brilliantly bright and clever you know mm. obvious is not the opposite of you know of the opposite of clever is not obvious the opposite of clever is stupid but it was obvious in the sense of of course so you can see the joke yeah but you've never thought of the joke and that's where the genius happens with that film and i just thought they were breathtakingly funny those films i mean especially that first one like a whole new kind of comedy it just like was amazing that it was like a it was like a damascene moment for me seeing that film on screen i love monty python i love monty python but for some reason airplane mm. has got a kind of a a sort of a surreal throw it away discard it we don't care it's a bit vaudeville like that i can't quite put my finger on the attitude behind mm. it is the attitude of the film where you go oh god i wish i could have done that so mm. that's a great film you know if they're watching abraham zucker and abraham's well done gentlemen yeah carry on making always films. love to give a shout out to writers and creators <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Love so, that. so then yeah brilliant oh that's gonna be so many fun things to think about i love that um like obvious clever relationship as well in terms of the frame because again that like some of the um things that I, I loved about your work as well it's like they it, well we've we said it now but they're to be or not to be joke but actually how you mm. see it is like oh of course mm. but it's in this fresh context and it like catches you and makes you laugh and it's really satisfying great i love oh, that thank you yeah thank you yeah oh wonderful so i have one more question i want to ask you before we wrap up which is that you're based in the UK. I'm also based in the UK. Uh, our listeners, lovely listeners all around the world, including in US and lots of other countries. But I just wondered how it's been for you having a career where you do live in the UK, just because often our assumption with some of the studios is that mm. um, it's trickier to do and that you have to be in LA. And you've mentioned mm. like, earlier on actually going through the, um, the UK branch, which again, I didn't know was a thing. So how have you navigated that? Has it been lots of travel, doing it remotely? How have you done it? Both those, yeah. yes. I mean, Rob and myself, we used to go to Los Angeles now and again, have meetings and work on various projects. It's nice to come home. It's nice to not be there if I'm honest yeah um, I mean I'm a member of the Writers Guild of America and all that sort of thing but I don't have to be only in that world mm. um, uh, so you come back and you know it's great being in London and being amongst our own culture and there's a whole market here as well so that's that's wonderful there's probably been a price to pay down through the years I think if you're in Los Angeles then you're in the swim. You can have those meetings more readily and more easily. Um, 
but it's there's a lot more um how can i say people are offered false hope quite a lot i think mm. um and you know you're there but so are a million other people um uh, and uh and it's been and also it's it's a real factory thing in america so you won't good on you if you stay on a movie as the only writer you know mm. you're hired and fired we tend to be I think somebody like Stephen Frears, was it, who said that they're not loyal enough to their writers in America and we're too loyal over here, mm. meaning that they're fired too soon over there and we're not replaced soon enough here. He may not say that about directors, so you know it's easy to say about another person's job, but um, I think it was Stephen Frears. Yeah. Uh, um, but so I'm I'm happy to be here there's been plenty of other zoom calls to be honest with you anime i've worked a lot in on the continent as well in mm. germany in france in belgium and there's a lot and there's more and more and more being made there um now um and you still have more freedom as a writer to to um explore your ideas mm. uh, but that's because the budgets are a lot smaller so mm. you know an animated film here may cost 15 million euros, uh, $150 million, $200 million in the US, mm. uh, and then the same to market it. So there's a lot more pressure. There's a lot more people who want part of that. So I'm, I'm very happy being here. Yeah, I love that. Unless, obviously, they invite me over and then I'm going to yes. play. Oh, yes, no, then you're Danielle, both goodbye I'm flying. <laughs> I'm fickle. What am I talking about? <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I love it. And uh, you've given us such a great um, challenge today to sort of really double down on, like, writing our own voice, um, being unapologetic about that. Such great advice. So many things I'm going to listen back to and write down and remind myself oh, of. So I really appreciate it. That's Before we wrap up, where should people go to find out more about you and your work? Well, as I mentioned earlier, you see, I was born John Smith. So that's mm. really difficult if you Google that. Uh, writing name, Johnny Smith. If you were to Google Johnny Smith screenwriter, it'll take you to my website. Uh, so uh, if you Google that, you'll see me and you'll see a lot more about what I do, uh, the kind of things I offer, which is also script consultancy, as mm. you mentioned. Um uh, and you'll see the TV work I've done and the live action, which I mm. haven't talked about at all, no. live action work I've done. Yes. Uh, that's the next podcast, obviously. Yes. Um, uh, uh, so look me up from my website, and then that will link you through to all the usual social media, if that's what you want to do. Um, and also, I've just changed agents. Can I mention that? Um, no. With it, no, I can't. Wait. Can oh, no, I, no I yes, can you can mention it. it. Sorry, oh, it's, it's, did I mention I thought, it? No, tell I us. <laughs> can yeah. I mention that? And you went, no. Oh, no. sorry. Oh, no. no, we want it all. We want it all. <laughs> <laughs> so you can um, go to um, Emily Wraith, my agent at Berlin mm. Associates. Berlin Associates, and you'll see a bit about me there. Or you will do in the next week or two, because I've literally just changed agents. Yeah. Um, or otherwise, just go to my website. And, Wonderful. And... and one sneaky last question. Just any advice for writers um, also who are uh, in the process of changing writers or um, changing agents or considering it? Because sometimes it's something that's not talked about uh, mm. so much, but I know lots of writers mm. who've changed agents for all kinds of different reasons. People mm. move to different places. People's family mm. commitments change. People are mm. um, focused on different things. Just any mm. advice for people who might be in that position as to how to navigate that? Well, yeah, Um some basics i mean if you find that you really 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 are at a point where you and your agent aren't working well together 
And by that point, you need to be honest and think, I'm probably no more used to them than they are to me. It's not all a one-way street. Um, then make sure you have an honest conversation with your agent first, because sometimes they say, oh, I didn't realize you felt that way. Hmm. I think writers can be a little bit intimidated because that's their only ally and they don't want to turn on them. Um, but if you really are, then my advice would be make sure you get a new agent before you let your previous agent know in a very nice way that it's not worth it for either of you. But the other advice I would give in terms of having an agent now, slightly different, Mm. I think is get an agent and then behave as if you don't have an agent, Mm. which means empower yourself. Go to conferences, festivals, network, meet people, pick up the phone, speak to a producer yourself. Um, you don't need to go through an agent and then you can refer them back to your agent if you are if they uh, want to hire you and they're discussing a contract if you do that you don't need your agent as much and therefore you're likely to become less um, um, unhappy with them because you're actually in a sense your own agent Mm. and you you kick back up the work that you're generating to your agent to negotiate on your behalf. So get an agent and then behave as if you don't have an agent. Yeah, I love it. Super proactive and really interesting uh, advice to consider. Thank you. And of course, I'll put put all your details in the show notes for listeners who want to follow those links. And thank you so much for your time today. I've learned tons. Oh, gosh, no one's ever said that to me. All right, well, uh, (laughs) thank you very much for for letting me be part of this. It's been really good fun. Thanks, Johnny. Bye-bye.